Welcome to the Make It After School Cool podcast, the link between research, practice, and theory for those interested in the activities youth are involved with during non-school hours. The Make It After School Cool podcast is produced by Case for Kids, a division of Harris County Department of Education, and I'm your host, Mike Wilson. Today's episode centers on a tendency that involves school-age students which emerged in the mid-1980s and still exists today. This trend concerns the disproportionate number of students of color being placed into alternative educational settings because of their behavior. This practice originally became known as the school-to-prison pipeline. However, over the years, it has become evident that the school-to-prison pipeline theory is more complicated and multi-layered. As a result, a new term called school-to-prison nexus has emerged. To discuss the difference between the two terms are my guests, Cersei Stumbo and Angelina Ramirez. Ms. Thumbo is the president of West Man Educational Policy, Inc., which she founded in January of 2001. Angelina Ramirez is a senior at Coe College at Cedar Rapids, Iowa, majoring in both political science and social and criminal justice. She is also a project assistant at West Wind Education Policy, Inc. Cersei and Angelina, how are you doing today? Great. So glad to be here. Doing thank- well. Thank you. But thank you for uh, being flexible and finding some time for us to uh, chat a little bit about this this issue. First, I would like for you to explain what's the purpose of Westwood Education Policy, Inc. Westwind is a small woman-owned company. Uh, We are a consulting and professional and leadership development company. We are based in Iowa, but we work all over the country to help education leaders in K-12 education Uh, Imagine and enact systems that overcome historic and persistent inequities and engage each and every child in learning. So we work with schools, with school districts, with state departments of education and other state education leaders, and with both federal and national leaders as well. Great. Now, the school to prison pipeline theory has been around for decades. Can you explain what exactly is school to prison pipeline? Yeah, so let me um, take a crack at it and then I'll invite um, Angelina to also um, share her perspective on it. Um, Essentially, the notion of the school to prison pipeline is how we've been able to look at what happens in schools, public schools across the country, and the ways that students of color in particular um, in schools end up coming into contact with and then ultimately often being in juvenile and criminal justice systems. So things like disciplinary practices that um, disproportionately impact students of color that then um, lead to the predominance of of them being sort of labeled as problematic and um, labeled as young people to be watched And so then they end up being noticed and known by law enforcement. Um, And so it's kind of a direct connection between the the ways schools, uh, the ways that students of color experience school with then them experiencing the juvenile and criminal justice system. It also plays out quite directly where um, literally police officers or um, school resource officers, SROs, who are either in or come to schools in order to deal with discipline problems, um, the ways that that very direct connection from the school into 
um, the criminal justice system is part of that pipeline. Generally speaking, a national trend um, where children are being funneled out of public schools and into these criminal justice systems through these practices and policies um, and personnel practices that, that occur in the school system. Um, it's, it's something, the school to prison pipeline is something that's been studied and researched for a few decades, um, probably even more so in without the terminology that's being used now. Um, and that's really where now we've kind of seen the, the shift in focus from, from pipeline to nexus. Um, now you brought up the term nexus. Um, why is this term more accurate? And can you explain the difference between the two terms? Yeah, so the pipeline describes a way that schools funnel specific students out of schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice system. Whereas the nexus describes the ways that schools function for all students and how the policies and practices and, um, and conditions of schools mirror the policies and practices and conditions of prisons. Um, and importantly, those policies, practices, and conditions disproportionately impact students of color. Um, but, but actually all students are being socialized into this nexus. Um, and, and the key part of that is what happens is when we look at schools, we see a readiness of adults in the schools to presume that students of color will be unruly or dangerous. And there is then a resulting mentality that classrooms and schools have to function with a kind of command and control mentality that's focused on order and compliance and silence on the part of students. And because of the historic narratives we have about people of color, this tends to really be focused disproportionately on students of color. Many physical similarities between prisons and schools, um, not just in the structure of the authoritarian kind of structure that you could see being enforced in both systems, but things like muted colors in a classroom, lack of natural light, confined spaces, you know, high gates surrounding the school uh, it with pointed tops at the end. Um, during recess, having patrolling faculty as, a, as opposed to, you know, interactive or participating faculty with students. Um, and then, of course, Cersei mentioned strict silence and order, um, even during oftentimes lunch and recess, which are specifically created for students to be able to release energy, <laughs> right? So um, just that authoritarian structure overlapping on both on both sides of, of the prison system and the school system. Um, and that could also look like policies such as dress codes, um, loss of individual autonomy. And for black students specifically, there are dress codes that affect them more so than white students, like hair discrimination dress codes, um, uh, bans on do-rags or bonnets or baggy or sa sagging pants and labeling those things as disruptive or um, distracting or taking away from educational experience when in reality these are cultural norms and should be accepted as such. Um, more importantly or, or maybe to add on to this is that kids notice this, right? I'm in college right now but I specifically remember a very specific moment in seventh or eighth grade where we were kind of looking around, we were at 
um, at our lunch and recess and we were looking around at the patrolling faculty and thinking, this is, this is like a prison. And we were cracking jokes at the time, not really understanding um, what it means for these systems to be so similar uh, without realizing the long-term effects of such things, um, such policies, practices, and visible differences, right? Um, between what an, a positive educational environment looks like, an empowering educational environment looks like versus what we have now, which is focused on command and control. Um, and the fact that kids notice this at such an early age kind of speaks to how influential these processes are. You know, it's interesting because you brought that up years ago, um, talking to some students just casually to get their perspective on you know, how their school day went. And I would usually hear terms, especially from students of color, you know, such and such faculty members picking on me. Or, um, you know, I was just talking to such and such, and then somebody else, a faculty member, thought we were arguing um, kids that tend to slap box. That's just, you know, something that they did. Whereas <laughs> if they did it on the school campus, it's like they thought we were fighting, but we were just playing. You know, it's like that cultural misunderstanding of the norm sometimes uh, caused faculty to overreact. And then these tendencies of going to the office or, uh, you know, being sent to an alternative placement site starts to develop. Um, during your research, training, and staff development, have you noticed if school faculty are aware of and are concerned about the disproportionate number of students of color being placed in a discipline placement setting? So definitely there's been some really important um, work out there that's um, helped, <clears throat> excuse me, help schools and districts to um, understand that there is this national trend that's very well documented and to be able to see um, to see that these are issues that schools should be thinking about. And so there are for sure um, folks at at least the policy level in districts and buildings um, who are more and more aware of that. Um, whether that turns into them actually looking at their own data is a, another question. <laughs> like the, they may understand the trends, um, but to really dig into your own data, it, can feel artificial or external or um, unimportant when what we're thinking about is the relationships and the learning. And so we find that they are, while there is concern, um, people are not digging into their own data as much as they could to find out what are the actual local patterns. Um, another reason behind that and another thing that happens when people do dig into their data and see some of the differences in the ways that um, white students are disciplined as compared to students of color, for example. Unfortunately, what happens is people have stories in their own minds about why that's happening. And so often we find people kind of unintentionally explaining it away. Um, again, I, I talked earlier about these historic narratives we have had about people of color. This historic narrative that people of color are inherently dangerous and we, you know, as a white society need to protect ourselves against them. It's, it's a, a very painful, difficult and false narrative that um, plays itself out even today. So that as people see, you know, in some cases, students of color, it's, it's demonstrated that they're disciplined at six times the rate as white students. 
the explanation people have in the back of their minds is, well, that's because students of color are acting out. And it's a it's a it's an assumed agreement that actually students of color should be disciplined at higher rates because they are acting out more. When in reality, when we go and we look at the research, and there's quite a lot of research on implicit bias and on um, the kinds of data that we see that show that it's much more the adult perception of student behavior than it is the actual student behaviors that differ. And another way of looking at it is that there are also misunderstandings that are cultural in nature, as you noted earlier, that that students playing out their own cultural norms are seen in the schools through the cultural norm of the school without realizing that that's a cultural norm rather than just the way it should be. So we have a cultural norm of what it means to walk down the hallway and students who are, are as you said, slap boxing and doing other kinds of things like that in the hallway is seen as disruptive when really we've not actually taken the time to think about in what ways might that be a great way for kids to release energy, to develop relationships, to have a connection to school if they can engage in their own cultural practices? Um, it's a, it's you got to start really peeling away the onion um, as you get staff to think about what it means that disproportionate numbers of students of color are disciplined. Yeah, I think you know biases and uh, um, misunderstandings of cultural norms definitely play a role. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier um, the hiring of police officers to provide school security. Um, how do you think this has affected the school climate and is also uh, a reason for the disproportionate number of students of color receiving discipline citations? Well, there's a direct connection. Do you want to? Sure, yeah. SROs, uh, this is according to a study done by the New York Times, SROs actually increase arrest rates for non-criminal youthful behavior. And that aspect of non-criminality and youthful behavior is really important when understanding that students of color and their behaviors are, like Cersei mentioned, often seen as, seen as problematic or seen as aggressive um, when, they, when they truly aren't a lot of the times. Um, so one study, this was done by the School of Psychology International, um, found that an estimated quarter of new charges filed against youth were school-related, a quarter, and one out of every six charges in school occurred in cases where there was no crime committed, but an SRO was present and therefore arrested the student. So these are criminal charges, and, and this is part of the issue that, that SROs in school campuses bring, right? There's the lines become blurred between criminal charges and criminal code and routine school policy, such as not being on your phone or not talking during class, right? And most SROs are given blanket, you know, sweeping amounts of power um, and jurisdiction over what they deem as acceptable or unacceptable. And that's where you see that, that disproportionality of students of color being charged with criminal criminal charges or punished through the school system um, at higher rates for less severe uh, problems or instances or issues. You know, additionally, there's there's a difference in mentality and difference in priority between SROs and um, school administrators. A study done by the National Institute of Justice shows that 83% of school administrators were more prevention oriented than the SROs stationed in their schools.
You know, this suggests that SROs are more likely to seek disciplinary responses rather than prevention. And this overall results in harsher punishments and increased arrests, um, which do not lead to learning. It does not lead to empowerment. It, it again leads to control. There are some other key differences in, or key statistics that I think is kind of important to, to cover. Um, a single arrest can lead to a 25% increase in the likelihood of dropping out of school. So that, that's really where you see what happens after the fact, right? What's happening after an SRO um, either abuses their power or, or takes advantage of the power that is given to them, right? Well, a case study um, in, a, in one of the journals of psychiatric um, adolescent nursing, they examined a county that previously had a lax set of rules and regulations for their SRO. Um, so they had, a, they had a lot of jurisdiction over what they deemed acceptable or unacceptable. And they later established a detailed set of rules that, and this is important, gave them, gave the SROs on campus the same duties that a school psychologist or a school counselor would have. So things like fostering conversations, um, restorative justice practices and all of that. And through this limiting of the SRO's jurisdiction, um, they found that school detention decreased by 86%, graduation rates increased to 80%, and 70, there's a 73% reduction in serious weapons on campus. And overall, the court referrals, felony referrals, and um, specifically court referrals of youth of color all decreased from 31 to 67%. So, this was a direct, you know, a direct study that exemplifies how how really we need to start shifting our priority from SROs to um, school psychology, school counseling, mental health services, things that foster again learning, teaching, and empowerment of students. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because you know right now there is a lot of discussion about police reform and you know. Um, defunding the police, which I think is a terrible term, doesn't adequately describe what people are actually thinking about. But I think, you know, having officers on the school campus presents an opportunity where uh, police actually get a chance to get to know kids. And, you know, they can talk to them, they can mentor them, they can kind of build a relationship with them. And I think some of the breakdowns that are going on in certain communities, just the lack of not actually knowing who um, the people living in the community are and looking at them as people and remembering that you have to protect and serve as well as enforce the law. Uh, but a key element is actually uh, building those relationships. And I think the research that you mentioned where it shows people actually talk and try to understand uh, is a great way in which you can actually alter behavior. Um, which kind of leads me to my next question. Do you have any recommendations which could help schools create a positive an inclusive environment and may reduce the number of students of color um, facing discipline issues. We do indeed. Um, uh, the first thing I want to say is that a lot of the research out there now that's looking at what are the kinds of interventions, if you will, that actually lead to moving the needle on things like discipline disproportionality or disproportionality in academic performance. Um, indicate that no one solution is ever enough. So that's kind of the first thing is, let's get it out of our minds that we're gonna do one thing and we're gonna suddenly change the course of this 400 year old narrative in our schools. So what we see is 
when we combine some kind of a new practice um, that, that relates to the kinds of concerns we might have around behavior and discipline, when we combine that intervention with a broader approach to culturally relevant or culturally sustaining pedagogy or culturally sustaining teaching and learning, the combination of those two interventions actually does lead to changing outcomes for kids. If we just do one or the other, um, the system tends to kind of snap back and not make that shift. So some of the interventions that um, are around behavior and discipline that have promise are things like restorative practices, um, a restorative justice initiative, where the, the focus is more on um, sustaining and restoring the community of learning rather than disciplining the individual child. So those practices are key. There's a whole lot of different approaches to that. Um, combine that with similarly professional learning and professional development around cultural relevance or cultural sustaining pedagogy, you end up with some really good outcomes. Um, another practice that's been studied is called Positive Behavioral Supports and Intervention, or PBIS for short. Um, again, that can be a really problematic um, program when it's not connected also to a, a, a cultural coherence or cultural proficiency um, framework as well, because we can often still bring our implicit biases to implementing things like PBIS, where the whole idea is we're supposed to be supporting um, through positive reinforcement. But when we have implicit biases about students of color, it, it gets kind of twisted. So we've got to have both things happening. I, I do want to just make a note that I think for me, one of the most important things about understanding the nexus is that what we're really doing is conditioning everyone to presume that we have to protect the learning environment. We have to protect the white students from students of color. And that that, that leads into some implicit biases that we unknowingly act on as, as adults and as professionals. So for example, there was a study done with some um, middle school teachers where they gave some scenarios and they invited teachers to talk about what they would do. And in these scenarios, the scenarios were exactly the same, but the race of the student was different from teacher to teacher. So they could get the sort of random sample of how would you respond to a student who misbehaved twice? And in the design of the study, in this scenario, the misbehaviors were minor and they were they were not connected. One didn't like lead to the other. They were disconnected um, behaviors. When teachers were asked, what would you do? Um, if they thought that the student was black, they were far more likely to understand the behaviors as being connected. So it was a pattern of behavior rather than a couple of isolated incidences and the disciplinary response to the second behavior was escalated and far more than when they thought the student was white. When they thought the student was white, they tended to see them as disconnected behaviors and the disciplinary responses tended to be sort of commiserate with the actual behavior. So we know that there's something going on around race that's more about the way we interpret student behavior than it is about any of the formal policies or practices that we have. And what we also know about implicit bias is when teachers learn this, they naturally change their practice. 
And when they're given practices and, and things they can do in order to really make a change in their decision-making, they actually do make changes. So we do know that actually implicit bias trainings can be effective um, if a couple of those kinds of key conditions that help them understand what implicit bias is and then give them some tools to reflect on their own practice. In addition to, to implicit bias and restorative practices and, and all the great things Cersei mentioned, there, there are some other things that schools could be doing that's more on a policy level. Um, it was mentioned before, you know, defunding the police and, and how that might not be um, the most obvious title for what the action is calling for, which is a reinvestment of funds. Um, and that's really what we're looking at here, right? One in four students are in a school with an SRO, but not a counselor, a nurse, a school psychologist, or a social worker. So when we talk about reinvesting funds, it's, it's reinvesting those funds that would normally go to an SRO on campus and putting it into supports and services, such as counselors, psychologists, training for teachers and administrators and healthcare for students. Um, beyond kind of reinvesting the funding, you could also ban zero tol tolerance policies. Um, that is probably the most basic <laughs> rule of thumb if you want to start tackling um, the long-term systemic um, issues that are coming out of the school to prison nexus. Um, and, and some smaller, seemingly smaller things, but will make a big impact, not only with the trust between students of color and faculty administration, but also the, the disciplinary um, outcomes of, of such policies such as limiting dress code, right? Re-examining your dress code and, and ensuring that students of color are not being disproportionately affected and impacted by those um, protocols and by the punishments that are linked with those protocols. Um, and kind of as an overall theme, right? Like reimagining um, how we see students of color learning and how um, we could tackle those obstacles that are we're putting in place, maybe unintentionally, but it's it's time we take a look at those and, and become intentional about it. Also brought up some, some very interesting points, and I think the silver lining to all of this is with training, with awareness, with maybe some reorganization, uh, the school to prison nexus can be eliminated. It's not a fixed theory. It's just something that has emerged and a tendency that if you continue doing business as usual, it will still be there. But if you change the way you operate and do business, then you can definitely uh, eliminate this, this practice. Uh, do y'all have any final comments? Um, I'll just say, uh, so Westwind does not have a f official um, position on the phrase defunding the police. So <laughs> I want to be clear that Angelina actually does do a lot of really important activism work outside of mm -hmm. Westwind. Um, and so uh, I just wouldn't want to make it sound like that as a company, we've got a position on that. But I think what you described, um, what Angelina described about the, the notions about how we should focus our investments on school counselors instead of SROs, for example, those ver that very much is in line with what the research tells us and what our experience in schools tells us is the kinds of things we should be thinking about. Right. And as, a, as an overall kind of last statement, um, education is the foundation of our future, right? I'm in the process 
process of finishing my education right now. So this is near and dear to my heart. It feels recent, it feels um, modern, it feels contemporary, it feels important, right? Like these are the issues that we really need to be examining to look at the long-term longevity and success of people of color, not just students, but people of color, uh, people coming from lower income communities, marginalized peoples. How do we set them up for success? And the first step to that is ensuring that education is not a barrier, but rather a stepping stone into success and, and something that prepares students and empowers students um, to become you know, successful agents of the world, change agents of the world. Um, and I think that's a really important sentiment to remind yourself as you're looking at these difficult topics um, and having these difficult conversations is that there's a long-term picture that you have to focus on of, of how we set up students for success. And by tackling the school to prison nexus, that is one way that we can do that. Yeah, so I, I appreciate having the time to talk about this today. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell she's passionate about yeah, this. Yeah, just exactly, a little bit. <laughs> exactly, and that's what's so neat about having young people, we have a, a younger generation that are, are exploring a lot of these issues, uh, especially some of the controversial issues, and not just going through that rabbit hole of, you know, I heard this and this person said that, and I'm gonna follow it, but actually doing some research and discovering from themselves what their own opinions are, you know, regarding those those issues. I think what I'd like to share about why I am committed to public education is that in a democracy, we really are talking about how do we make social decisions? How, if a democracy really is about um, the average a resident having a say in making decisions, it really is about making decisions that impact other people. So we're talking about understanding the key role of a public school system is to prepare us to be good self-governors, right? And part of what that, what matters so much about the ways we understand this nexus, the ways that the practices and policies and habits of schooling reinforce images of prisons is that we're not only disproportionately hurting students of color, we're also training white students mm -hmm. on what they should understand the world is like. And we have to be really careful about what that is. What is that message we want to be sharing? What are those beliefs that we are explicitly and implicitly imparting to the next generation? And how are the ways we engage in discipline and in particular, the ways we disproportionately engage in discipline mm -hmm. based on misunderstandings or um, biases related to our beliefs about behavior, how is that setting up um, problems in democracy as we move forward? Mm -hmm. And so it really, it, it really is important that this is for all students. Paying attention to the nexus here really does help each and every student, whether they are students of color or white students. Exactly. We really can do things to make the conditions and the outcomes different for kids. And so it's exciting what you're doing with the podcast. It, it makes a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Making after school cool. Well, Cersei and Angelina, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of the Making After School Cool podcast. I do I really, really appreciate your time and your uh, feedback regarding this issue. Thank, thank you. you so much. 
As always, I want to thank our listeners for joining us for this episode where our topic focused on the school to prison nexus. Please join us for future broadcasts to continue to explore issues relevant to the out-of-school time field.